From Mississippi State University in Starkville, Mississippi, this is Taking the Reins Podcast. If you love all things horses, get ready for a relatable and educational look into the lives of horses and the people who love them. Now here's our host, Clay Cavender. You've got saddles you're making for people that are ordering and you understand the industry and you're learning. You, you don't have to come from that judging background. No, and, and I think you're right. I mean, I understand the mechanics of the horses enough and understand the exercise fit side of it from my time at A&M that I really think that helps me in getting ones to fit right, understanding how they should function, things like that. Where did that all come from? Because when I knew you at A&M, I think you were kind of destined maybe to go to the academic route, but how did you wheel off into saddles? and? So growing up, we always had uh, a really high appreciation for gear. My granddad taught us from an early age about using good stuff, taking care of good stuff, um, and always collected bits and spurs and had an appreciation for that. And so when I was in undergrad, I started braiding more and just making things that I couldn't afford or couldn't find anywhere else, just like a lot of us. And that developed over time into actually doing leather work because he started doing leather work. My granddad went to Tandy and got some tools and we lived in Amish country and so he had access to a decent amount of leather that he could get from harness shops or boot shops around and start messing with it. And then he would just teach me the little things that he'd learned and building head stalls and reins and tie downs and strap goods mostly. Um, and then when I was at AM, I got lucky that you were, you were just fiddling with braiding and stuff yeah. when I knew you. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. I wasn't like doing it as business or anything. I was just trying to make stuff that, you know, stretched my skills a little bit. And got lucky with having Don there and Brian um, because fully functioning saddle shop that had been in business for 10 years and built high-end custom rope saddles. Did and, you just swing by Don Gonzalez's yeah. place and say, hey? Yeah, I'd gone in a few times and talked to him about stuff because he knew I did a little leather work and braided and his dad braided. And so... He had a great appreciation for that connection. Um, And my assistantship was ending and I needed to figure out something. And so I went in one day, asked him if he knew of any jobs, cowboying or training horses, ranch stuff. And he said, well, why don't you work for me doing assembly work? And so I said, okay, started the next Monday and day one started learning how to slick edges. And that's been, it's gotta been 10 years ago. Yeah, I started in 11. Yeah. 12 years ago yeah so that's where we're at today i will pull up here to calvin waters saddlery you got a beautiful shop for sure here in troy texas just north of temple great neat place what is your kind of day-to-day stuff like are you doing mostly saddles i'm digging those chaps (laughs) i mean those chaps are awesome thanks some of the bridles and stuff you got here really neat ton of good stuff but are are saddles mostly what you're doing yeah i'd say about 50 50 still eventually my goal is to only build saddles to be that busy that i can turn other stuff away but i still that's all you want to do is build saddles yes sir yeah so i still build you know quite a few belts wallets knife sheaths gun holsters i build everything but boots and phone cases is it all custom work people call you and want to do it and yeah we i don't typically keep a ton of inventory just because the belts are never the right size or color right. or they want to add initials or their brand or something like that yeah. so. you went to finley university is in ohio i think you're a native of ohio yep. uh your wife's from ohio right mm-hmm. yeah so yep. how did you migrate to texas and stay here for because i walked in and i'm gonna i'm gonna put a, i'm gonna take a picture of you later in, in your shop and put it on the album cover for the artwork but you are you look like the quintessential <laughs> texas cowboy leather work and saddle maker you mean you fit right in so how did that all come about from ohio not that ohio can't be cowboys right well you know i was i was very fortunate to grow up in the family that i did um my grandfather trained horses for a lot of years and judged for a lot of years and he was the first president of the ohio quarter horse association and then worked as a board member tri-chairman and worked at every congress since the first one until a few years ago and so growing up in that family um you know we were in the horse business we weren't necessarily showing as much as kids we were going to little riches rodeos and things like that but it was always imparted on us to look our best and start shirts and jeans and we got some funny looks being the oddity in ohio wearing a cowboy hat but 
it was part of life. And then just knew I wanted to come to Texas. We came down in undergrad for a Horseman's Association conference. And I can't remember, the first one may have been in Fort Worth and my wife and I just fell in love with the area and the, the scenery and, and we said we wanted to live here. And so after undergrad, uh, didn't get into vet school and went the grad school route and came down here. So that's, and you're staying? Yeah, no, we're not going we're back. Not going back. <laughs> You've got a great place right off of 35, and so I'll definitely put the link of stuff. People can can find you and, and your Facebook address or whatever. But neat little shop here and, and a neat story of how you got here. I'm actually going to have Dennis on, Sigler, yeah. who was your major professor. He's yep. going to talk about feed and feeding and that kind of thing. So neat how that all come about full circle. What do you think you said to vet school? Did you think that's what you were going to do growing up? Oh, yeah. Because here's another interesting fact about everybody I keep interviewing. Everybody that's tied to the horse business in some capacity kind of got there accidentally. Right. It's really weird. And my own story is the same. I didn't really set out to be who I am today. It just kind of fell together. Right. So, yeah, growing up, that's all I wanted to do was be a vet. I went and worked in clinics whenever I could and... Um, helped large animal vets around you know working cows horses doing just any general veterinary work and that was always the goal i went to the university of finley specifically because they had a good pre-vet program and probably didn't take it as seriously because i thought i could just get by the way i did in high school and didn't get in and then i was like okay well now what what else is out there and that was almost a bigger issue at the time than it is now um, I think because a lot of the academia looked at the industry and said, hey, we need to get our information out there more. Because at the time, I didn't know there was anything other than vet school that I could continue to do at you know a high scientific or academic level in the ag industry and specifically in the equine industry. And so I went to my one of my advisors and said, what should I do? And he said, check out grad school. And I said, what's that? We didn't have you know a graduate program at the University of Finley. And I didn't even know what animal science was because we didn't have that there. And so I think I came to Texas without having any idea of what it was even going to be. I was that's the same story today. We got a ton of pre-vet majors that they go because they want to do something, quote, professionally, right. you know, post-grad or post-undergrad, but they don't know exactly what that is. So again, I love the, that you just kind of found your niche and um, maybe trusted your own process of figuring that out. But that's a pretty cool story as well. I think starting your own business takes a lot of courage. A lot of hard work for sure. Tell me how this store specifically came about. When did you decide to leave Don's and knew you were ready? Um, that was a bit of a period of transition for all of us at Don's at the time. Jody had left. She had been our painter and phone answerer and she kept the shop running. Clay Kinney was one of the toolers and he was fixing to leave. And so we were kind of all in this weird period of transition. And Don had wanted to go back to having a shop at the house or something smaller than what he had at the time. And, and my wife took a job down in Wallace. And so I said, you know, we're gonna have to move. I don't know what this is gonna look like, but I'm probably just gonna go out on my own. And, and he supported the decision at the time. You know, I'd put three and a half years in and, and felt like treated it really like the apprentice style of learning where I I didn't get to touch saddle for the first year. You know, I might help with repairs or this, that, and the other, but as far as like actually working on saddles, it was a while until I developed the skills necessary to do it correctly. So then Liz took that job in Wallace. We moved down there for a little bit and I just started doing it in the house. Um, you know, rode some horses for some guys and kind of bounced around a little bit, just tried to get it off the ground slowly. And it's been a long process. I mean, it. Everybody talks about how hard it is to start a business as a saddle maker, you know, as far as whether, rather than inheriting one or like actually getting your name out there. And it's not necessarily that, it's more that life is hard, life gets right. in the way. When you're the only one here that can slick those edges or tool that belt, when the pickup goes down, you've got to be the one to be out of the shop to do that. And so just navigating the, the differences of day to day can be the biggest struggle, but you know, for years I just had a shop in the garage and and did everything online. Customers didn't really come to the house much. Um, I might take a saddle tree out and do a fitting at their place or whatever. And 
and we needed to move and couldn't find anything that was going to work and so I started looking for retail space and got really really lucky with this because it's it's kind of the perfect size for one or two guys to work in the shop and be fully functioning yet have a small retail area up front and really great location on 35. Yeah, you, you're doing a great job. It, look, it's, it looks great. Thank it's you. really neat. What do you think the highs and lows have been? Like you could identify one thing that you said, hey, I knew I was on the right track on this point and maybe one that made you question what you were doing. Every day that phone doesn't call, you might question what you're doing. Um, that, you know, the low side of it is the feast or famine aspect of my of our industry. I mean, there's times of the year where it's great, you know, Christmas time, everybody wants to give presents and, and we can, you know, try to make hay when the sun's out. But really it's just been trying to balance that intersection between my life and how it relates to the customer's life. You know, I hate missing deadlines. I hate it even worse when it's for a birthday present or a Christmas present or something. But there are times that extenuating circumstances happen and, and so navigating that balance of explaining it to people where in my mind, they don't care. They don't care that your kid's sick and you had to take them to the doctor. They don't care that your tire blew out and took you four hours and that made it late and didn't get to the mail that day. But there's still enough good days where you realize that you're not just creating something for someone to wear and feel good about themselves, but I can also create something that a guy can go out and raise his family by, you know, earning a good living using my saddles. Early on, I struggled with the idea of, of how this relates to what God wants me to do. And understanding that it's not just a frivolous thing that I'm creating something for, you know, guys to wear and feel vain or, you know, proud about themselves or whatever, but that creating happiness in people's lives is a worthwhile pursuit as well. And so that was kind of one of those things that when I finally learned that it showed me that, yes, I was on a good path and this was what God called me to do. He called me to be creative and to take something from and create it from nothing um, and put my soul into it and my artwork into it as well. Man, I love that. For people who made this is where we're going. So this is the next question I want to kind of get into is I hear this question all the time. How much does, does a good saddle cost? And that range is probably pretty wide. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> but here's the good. Here's the thing I know about cowboys. The cowboys don't make a whole lot of money they don't do it for the money right but they will spend what they do have on a good pair of boots a nice bit chaps because it's quality stuff and like you yeah. just said they take so much pride in the ownership of it right. and, the, and the the detail that goes into that stuff yeah uh, i can't quit looking at them chaps i really right. want them chaps but that is the question that the casual horse owner really balks at when you tell them this saddle costs thousands of dollars and they're what yeah they may not have paid that much for their horse so there's a good chance of that right yeah so let's talk a little bit about that so so much goes into saddle making up obviously tons of different things what do people need to know about saddle fit and quality i think the biggest thing that the casual horse owner struggles with is rationalizing the price difference between let's call them production made saddles and handmade saddles yes Production saddles are still made by hand, but we use the term handmade saddles as a way of relating that one or two people probably did all of the work and that those people could do all the work by themselves, you know, have the skill set. Production made saddles are built the same way that cars are. So, assembly line. There's nothing wrong with that. And I will never begrudge somebody for having a production made saddle. And because those saddles need to exist, that price point needs to be filled because not everyone can afford a $4,500 saddle. Not everyone necessarily needs a $4,500 saddle. And that might be controversial. I should be telling everybody that yes, you should be riding handmaids, but I'm being realistic in this. Not everybody rides futurity winners. Not everybody needs a handmade saddle to go on that horse that they might go ride once a week. And so understanding those two things that production saddles need to exist and handmade saddles also should exist. I think people need to realize that the production ones have to cut corners somewhere to hit those price points. And we can talk about leather quality 
tree quality. You know, they're using subpar materials as far as bars that have too many knots in them or um, wood that's just not really designed, you know, using pine and some softer woods that's not designed to hold up for years and years and years of abuse. And when you say tree, you're talking about the foundation of the yes, saddle, sir. right? Because a lot of people may not even know that underneath all that leather is what we call a tree. Yes, sir. So we start with the tree, and those are going to be, well, some are built out of other materials, but they should be built out of wood and either fiberglass or rawhide covered. And when we say fiberglass covered, that really means that it's reinforced in certain areas around the bars where they join up with the cannel and the swells and where the horn attaches, things like that. But then they're epoxied. Well, not epoxied, it's resin that's poured over them. So the resin is really what's providing the strength, and they're not necessarily completely covered in fiberglass from head to toe. Now, the good ones are. The good ones have fiberglass everywhere, but some of the production ones will just use as reinforcement and then paint the resin over the entire tree. And what are you going to pay hundreds of dollars for a good tree? Yeah, so mine are going to range from 500 to about 800 or 1,000 for a handmade tree. The biggest thing is the material is not necessarily the only place the tree manufacturers cut corners. Sometimes it's aesthetics. Sometimes they're using patterns that are old and outdated and, you know, the cannels are too flat, they have too much oval to them, or the swells are just not pretty, or they're leaning too far forward, or whatever. But the biggest thing is that their bar patterns are probably incorrect. And so they may be using bar patterns that were effective in the 50s and 60s that don't even exist on today's horses. You know, these backs have changed significantly, even in the last 30 years, um, to the point where you might be trying to cut corners and thinking it's just material costs and you're having fit issues because they cut too many corners. And so that's where, you know, sticking with some of the, the newer, more contemporary production companies like the Saddle House, like Bob's, like a Jeff Smith, some of those are going to be built off of trees that they did take the time to make sure that they are going to fit better than, you know, some of the other brands do. But there again, the quality of the leather might be where they saved some money or the length of time they took to tool it. And so that's where I, I'm never going to say that a production saddle shouldn't exist because to me, everyone may use that as a way of learning. Okay, I like this seed size. I like this swell pattern. I like this horn shape and then step up to a handmade saddle. And you're still on a production saddle. If you're talking about high quality saddle, a saddle that- You're still looking at between 2250 and 3,000, 4,500 for you know, a fully tooled production made saddle. Um, yeah, so the casual horse owner sitting there thinking, well, I paid X amount of dollars for my horse. And like you said, you, you hit the nail on the head with a high percentage. I don't know what that percentage is, but my guess is probably the majority of horse owners are not riding day-to-day -day four, five, six, seven no. horses. So they may see, like, okay, well, that's great and all, and that's pretty, but uh, there's a lot of saddles out there I can buy for $400. Right. So my easy answer for that is without getting into actually counting how much thread and needle or thread and glue I use on one, my general material cost is between a thousand and fifteen hundred dollars just in the materials that I have to build that saddle. So if you're talking about buying a new one for less than that, then we're talking about some things that might even be dangerous. You know, there's some saddles that are built overseas that the trees are actually plastic and they're hollow. They're like a balloon. And they're dangerous because they can drastically come apart in the you know, the middle of doing something and somebody could get in a wreck. Most of the issues that people are going to have with the tree breaking are going to be slowly over time whereas some of that stuff i wouldn't put on one i hated the funny thing is the used market for some reason we can build saddles that last 100 years we have saddles that are older than that but yet they depreciate faster than bits spurs buckles things like that and yet people don't understand that the used market can be a great avenue to find even handmade saddles that might not be as pretty. They might be a little wore out. They might need some refleece or they might need a horn covered or whatever, but they're true legit handmade saddles between a thousand and $1,500. They might've been built in the eighties, but like some old Oliver's or, you know, some of these different saddle shops from out West that were in business, you know, years and years and years ago, 
people are selling and they're still very, very usable for that thousand to fifteen hundred dollar range. And so I, I recommend a lot of people try to go that route rather than trying to find, you know, a brand new production, fully tooled, inlaid seat, all the bling that they can afford because it might be so bad that they're having issues they don't even realize. It's a valid point. Here's the thing I think of when I think about what saddles cost. If you're truly into what you're doing, you're gonna ride horses. Maybe that's your life, what are you, whatever you're gonna do. Or you think I'm gonna be a horse owner for the rest of your life. I just walked in your shop here and you got a, you said probably an 80s model Leddy's that you're back there fixing some stuff on, but yeah. that thing's in good shape. That's yeah. a nice saddle. So somebody paid back in the 80s, they probably paid fifteen hundred dollars or something. Oh, I'd say back then probably closer to three thousand really? for a ladies. Yeah, that was about to, half tooled. That saddle today's you had you go down to ladies to get that saddle made today. Oh, it's eight or ten probably. Yeah. But the but the point is they paid that much back in the eighties and they yeah. probably that's a lot of money. Yeah. Even today that's that's enough money. But they still got it. Right. It's still usable. Yeah. Very usable. And has a lot that's how it's got a lot of life left in it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And that's kind of goes back to my philosophy on everything I've tried to create. My goal is to build things that your grandchildren pass down, meaning that you got a good 20, 30 years out of it. Your kids did, their kids did, and that your great grandkids get to use it and they at least have it in their house and enjoy it. And that's a very doable thing because like I said, we have saddles that are over a hundred years old. So trying to create um, gear that not only is aesthetically pleasing, um, and pushing myself boundary-wise with my artwork, but also the highest quality and going to last as long as possible. And not to put anyone down who, you know, maybe it's just people can't afford anything like that. Yeah. So that's completely reasonable. Absolutely. But if you have to, if you purchase, like let's say it's cheaper being saddled like a synthetic made saddle or something, the value long-term is not gonna be there, no. right? So maybe in the long run, you may be paying as much, you know, if like, if you're going to keep it 50, 60 years, right? You're going to go. You're going to run through some synthetic saddles or cheaper made saddles versus saddles. exactly. And you know, you could end up replacing them more often. The biggest thing is, you know, you may go buy a used thousand dollar handmade saddle, ride it for five or six years, and sell it for a thousand dollars. Like that's the the thing that they kind of almost plateau at a certain point where, as long as they're still functional and fit a horse, that they won't go beyond that because we can fix everything on them. I've got one over there that was built in the late 70s, early 80s, I think, and it is not in good shape. It is going to be a complete rebuild. The only thing that's staying on it is the ground seat and maybe the skirts if they straighten out enough. The rest of it I'm going to completely rebuild. The swells are going to get recovered, new seat, new candle binder, new plugs, new fenders. But yet that saddle meant enough to him and that tree fits him and his horses well enough that it was worthwhile to go that extra mile and do all that work on it. So that's where I'm saying, like, if we start with good bones and start with a good tree, you know, and keep that for a long time. It, absolutely. Yeah. And it, and I like what you said, too, because we all know that ride. That's my saddle. Right. And I know where it's been. I tell you a funny story about Dennis Sigler. Mm hmm. So it's been years ago, it's probably been 12, 13 years ago, I got this new two-year-old, I was riding barn, and I went to California for four or five days, and I came back, and I got in my, I, I put my saddle on, got in, my, got in my saddle, and I was like, this isn't, something's not right. <laughs> I can't put my finger on it, but something's not right. So I get off, I look at my, where my length is, you know, and I'm like, okay, it's not, my stirrups felt funny. Yeah. Nothing was out of place, so I get back on, I finish my ride. Anyway, I go, I'm going home, and Dennis calls me. He says, uh, what are you doing? I, said, I just got done riding. I said, man, something is wrong today. He said, what do you mean? He said, Some, I said, something was wrong with my saddle. He starts laughing. He said, yeah, I borrowed your saddle this weekend, but I put, the, I put it back where it goes. I could just tell, I knew it had been, there was something about the feel of my saddle that was not quite the same. Right. So you develop this weird, I don't bonds the wrong word, no, but it's, it's this connection with, with your equipment yeah. that makes it work. Right. You know, there ain't nothing worse than going to a clinic and someone says, will you ride this for me? Like, I don't want to, cause it's not my saddle. You yeah. Know? But, I usually don't have to worry about that. Cause if I'm helping people, 
I can use the excuse of, well, your saddle's not big enough for me, no, so I can't lift fenders you're up six, far enough. Five. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but okay, that's that's a good synopsis of quality. Yeah. Here's the question I, I've always struggled to, to answer for people when they ask me. There is a certain entity, we don't have to name them, but there's a certain market for these adjustable, I can't remember what they call them, like wedges, so your shims. shims, so your saddle fits every time, every horse, way it's supposed to. And I can't get past this, Calvin, I can't get past that. If I'm paying four, five, six thousand dollars for a saddle, then I need eight of them if I got eight horses. I can't get past that. I think that every saddle I've had on a stock type horse, my saddles have been of quality and they've all fit. I never can remember a horse that was sore back because of the saddle fit. Can you speak to that part of it about the fitment? How does someone look at a saddle and know it fits that horse? Is there truth to this? We need this shim system to make them all fit so that, that it works better for the horse. Is there is that valid? So I'm going to start with hopefully if, if this is all that anybody takes from this podcast um, and maybe takes and does a little more research and goes beyond this. Saddle fit is not rocket science. It is not as difficult as everyone in the past 20 years has made it out to be because a lot of times issues arose more so because of, I think, poor horsemanship than necessarily saddle fit issues, along with using those some of those poorly made or lesser quality production saddles that were using bark patterns that were incorrect for that period of time's horses. I think it's two things. The horsemanship issue has nothing to do with riding. I honestly think that most people's fit issues come from poor placement. Putting the saddle in the correct spot is 99% of it. Then we can talk about some different things as far as confirmation, bar shape, bar pad angle, um, you know, bar width, any of those things that we want to talk about. Sure, we can get into those. But for the most part, I only use bar pattern, one, one bar pattern, two different measurements for all of my customers' horses. We either go with a six and a quarter gullet, which translates to a four inch handhold. Your tree manufacturer is gonna go off of handhold measurement or gullet measurement. They don't like to do both for some reason. Um, or six and a half, which goes back to a four, either four and a quarter or four and a half. But the shims were, I'm not gonna name names, but were one manufacturer's answer to a problem that shouldn't have been as big of an issue at the time, I think we're having fit issues where people weren't happy with how these saddles were fitting. They weren't staying in place. They were moving or pinching or whatever anybody's issues was. And so their argument was, well, let's go so wide that it doesn't matter. And then we'll try to fill in the spaces with shims. And my, I guess, best analogy for it is you wouldn't go buy a pair of boots that was three sizes too big and put extra socks on. And so I really do truly believe that every quarter horse in this country could be fit off of two maybe three bar patterns and yet we've got all of these different measurements no industry standard and i think that was maybe kind of back to some of the issues with fit that people shouldn't have had to deal with when one manufacturer says semi-quarter horse bars that has absolutely no bearing on the next manufacturer's semi-quarter horse bars. Now, when you're saying all this, like for reference here, when you we're talking about stock type horses, yes. that when you, we get into like Arabian or something like that, we got a different those situation. Those are completely different measurements. Those are uh, I can fit those horses, but for today's argument's sake, like we can just kind of focus on stock type horses, quarter horses, and so. When we have customers that come in and say, well, I, you know, I was told by somebody that I needed to go with the full quarter horse bars on this horse or blah, blah, blah. That tells me absolutely nothing because I don't know what those saddle manufacturers were basing any of those measurements on. And some of them don't have good enough quality control to make sure that that tree truly was the same as the one that came before it. So that is part of a goal that I have. I'm hoping to, over the next few years, develop an association for Western saddle makers that is similar to what the Farrier Association has done, where we have some sort of certification process in order to 
gain ourselves a little bit of instant credibility for the average customer that walks in the door. We spend so much time trying to convince someone that we know what we're talking about that could be utilized somewhere else. And whether that's social media, whether that's people that are coming in, it should not take us years and years and years to develop the rapport with people that I know what I'm doing well enough for you to then go on and have success. And I think today we have so many saddle makers that are in agreement of a lot of things. You know, there's a lot of, there might be differences in how one's constructed or how we put one together or how we like it to ride or how we like it to look. But for the most part, we agree a lot on fit and we agree a lot on, you know, why things should be installed the way that they should. And I, I think I've gotten a lot of really good feedback from a lot of guys that there is value in that from our standpoint, like, cause people are gonna say, well, how do I make money off of it? And that's truly valid to, to worry about whether you should take time out of the shop to go study and to do a written test to become certified. And that might not be for everyone, but I, I think there is value in that because there are a lot of us out here still doing it every single day, building handmade gear that can benefit a lot of people. I think it's a great idea because in, in about every industry that I can think of, there's, there is improved value for the person going through an increased education. Oh, absolutely. You know, because here's the thing about, you mentioned a lot ago, this is a tradesman thing, which all horse stuff is basic, basically tradesman-based. If you want to be a horse trainer, you go work for a horse trainer. Right. You know, but once you go out on your own and you seclude, you've kind of peaked your education unless you go look for it. Absolutely. So I think that's a good point in that if there's some way and improves the network. Right. If every two years you had to go somewhere and meet up with a bunch of other saddle makers and talk about what they're doing. Hey, man, that's we, we're already doing that. You know, there's, there's get togethers all across the country that, um, and it's not just saddle makers. We're seeing a resurgence in bit and spur makers, rawhide braiders, everything in the Western arts is probably doing better now than it ever has because of the internet and people being able to share information. And so much information is given out freely today that, you know, a lot of us are seeking that within some of the groups on Facebook and, and can network with saddle makers all across the country that 30 years ago you would have had to do by letter. Yeah. But guys are not that old school mentality of where you walk in their shop and they cover up what they're working on. Like they used to be like, if they found out you were a saddle maker, they might not even talk to you because they didn't want to share anything. And they looked at everybody as competition. And mm -hmm. I don't think that's the way that today's average maker approaches things. You know, I, whenever I find a new leather worker that is in my area or just somebody that's new online and doing successful work or better than me, I don't look at them as competition. I think that's awesome because that means that the market is strong enough to sustain both of us. And that maybe there's more customers out there for me to go get. So I, I think that utilizing the technology that we have today as a way of also educating up and coming saddle makers, or maybe even we have a, an apprentice network that's set up to where people can apply through us and we help place them somewhere across the country. You know, utilizing some of that stuff, they've been doing it for years and years in the farrier world, in the veterinary world. And, and I think there's some application here that could benefit a lot of people. This may be a hard question. What are some things, some easy takeaways that our listeners could use to say, yep, this saddle's working for me or it's not, besides just it feels good to right. my to me, but how do I know that it sits right? I know you said that putting the saddle in the right place, I, I completely agree with that. Yeah. But what are some things that our listeners could look at to say, yep, this saddle's working for my horse too? You know, I hear a lot of trainers and podcasts or different places talk about horses being one-sided. You know, they go better to the right or go better to the left. And there can be tons of different causes for that. There are some times where, you know, a saddle might be a little different one side to the other. Or the saddle stretched, like your fenders stretch differently. I just did a fender repair on one, or a stirrup leather repair on a saddle yesterday. And the whole the blevins was in the exact same side left right and one side was three quarters of an inch longer than the other was it left i don't remember which one it was but that probably was because of getting on and off right. every time it's, yeah it's funny because rob huddleston good friend of mine he said that they were talking on a podcast and he uh or actually just talking he said he 
gets on the left, but he gets off the right. To make sure stirrups. I said, like, what for? And he said, I don't want my stirrups to be the wrong, yeah. in, you know, different length. Yeah. I'd like, whatever. You know, I really I didn't say it. No. It, but that now, is now a, I'm going to have to apologize to him for thinking that. Yeah, because, again, using a little lesser quality material can make a difference with that. But the other thing that I do is I stretch all of my stirrup leathers and fenders. Once I build them, I put them on a stretcher that turns them 180 degrees and puts a good twist in them. And then I stretch them until they're creaking and try to get all of that out of them so that you don't have to take the stretch out of them. And then it does it consistently back to the placement question. I think that's a big, 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 factor in whether one's working or not and it's super easy you can feel that horse's scapula and almost cup your fingers around the edge of it and when that horse takes a step it rotates backwards so if it's in the neutral position where it's just standing still we want to make sure that the front edge of the bar pad is set behind his scapula i don't care where that means the girth is going to be because that is immaterial. I can change that by putting a different rig placement in, but that tree needs to sit in a very specific spot. And that is behind the shoulder blade so that it has room to rotate and not come in contact with that front edge of the bar. And so your concho at your keeper is kind of a good marker for where that front edge is, but you should be able to feel that as well. Every single time I saddle a horse, I check that. I make sure that it is behind the scapula on both sides. And I do this for a living. You'd think I could just throw it up there and go, but it is that important. A lot of guys are, they've got people who saddle for them. Yeah. Trainers, you know. And so I can't think of anybody that I know of. I never was like told, this is how I want my saddles put on. I just put my saddles on like I like them and I know they work for me. But I wonder how many of those guys that have got set, you know, people putting saddles on for them have been educated in what you just said probably right. not many no i think the the biggest thing is when you start to think about it and you start to think about the biomechanic side of it i can't imagine trying to turn around with somebody on my back and my shoulder blades being rubbed constantly with every single stride i take because that's probably going to be where it's most pronounced is where that horse reaches a little bit and that scapula really opens up and puts pressure on mm -hmm. that side mm -hmm. and then not to mention somebody's laying on it because they're out of position here's the other thing they're going to move around a little bit especially on some you know mutton withered horses that don't have a really de defined shoulder pocket and are rounder i might have to readjust three or four times throughout a full day i would almost expect that you know i don't want to ever build one that gets locked down in one spot and is expected to stay in that one spot exactly for 24 you know for eight hours a day kind of like your shoes some you gotta you gotta readjust your shoes a little bit yeah for sure that's really mostly on your younger horses you know younger horses are extremely hard to fit i don't recommend anybody takes the time to have one built for their two-year-old because he's going to drastically change between now and when he's five now if you're riding pretty consistently the same type of horses and you're a two-year-old man sure we can build you a couple handmaids that are going to fit the majority of them but i wouldn't put one on a aged horse because they're going to be so different right so a lot of our listeners may be shopping for saddles or looking online and one of the measurements that's given for someone who's looking for a saddle or trying to sell a saddle is seedling yeah so so someone who doesn't know what does that mean how do i measure it so a seat length measurement is going to be basically from the back of the swells to the front of the seat or the front of the camel, you know, the back right. leading back edge. That's kind of a, it's an okay measurement to use the industry standard that it derived from or developed, I guess, didn't paint the whole picture because if I have two trees, same bar pattern, but the swells are lean forward they could be attached at the same point but that's going to give you a bigger seat measurement mm. because they're leaning forward the measurement that we really should have gone with was more thigh gap so understanding the diameter of your thigh to the width of the measurement between the bottom point of the swells and the ear of the cannel or the the where the ear the cannel attaches to the bar really gives you a better picture of how that's going to feel when you're riding but 
You want to talk about stirrup length? Stirrup length can make a huge difference in how a 16 feels versus a 15 and a half. We let the stirrups out a little bit and you've instantly got more room. But that might not be what your discipline demands of you. You know, if you're team roper versus a cutter, you're going to ride wildly different stirrup lengths for very specific reasons. And so that's where some of that can get a little bit confusing as somebody that's starting out and saying, well, you know, I need to have room for my belly. No, you don't. <laughs> you maybe just need to go with a little bit different swell to give you a little bit of extra space, but yet still keep you securely in that saddle. And the way the ground seat's built has a huge influence on how that saddle is going to ride because I get people all the time that swear they need a 16 and a half or a 17 and I tell them that is entirely too big for you. You don't need a saddle that's that big. You're swimming in it. You're not riding cutting horses and get them to something that's a little bit more reasonable for them and their horse and they perform better because of it. And discipline has a lot to do with that too. If you're yeah. going to buy, if, you, if you're the casual horse owner looking for a saddle, you need to know the difference between a ranch cutter and a barrel saddle for sure. Right. Because they sit way different. I don't know how those... Well, if we compare, and this is kind of the back to our research background, if we compare things correctly they shouldn't because if i build you a barrel saddle or i build you a cow horse saddle they should feel the same because the ground seats are going to i'm going to build the ground seats very similarly for those two disciplines because the movements are very similar i don't but ride barrel we, horses but they look right, like they're just that's confined. The, they are very confined but they also stand their cannels way up so that when that horse drops down you've got more security behind you to keep you in the pocket when he goes to make his big jump out of the barrel but then we still have you know similar movements in the cow horse but we don't want to be confined so that we have a little bit of leeway to catch back up if that horse took a weird step or the cow cut across us a little bit more we don't want to be trapped in there as much but if we compare today's production barrel saddles with a production cow horse saddle they are going to be built wildly different but if we talk with our handmade guys the only difference between this ranch cutter that i have in the shop and a barrel saddle i'm 100 serious is going to be the horn shape and the skirt shape maybe the fender shape as well to cut a little bit of weight to try to make things a little more streamlined and a little lighter but as far as the rest of how it's built, it's the exact same thing. So I have people all the time that come in and say, well, can you build me a barrel saddle? I say, absolutely. Because the only thing that's different is maybe the swell shape. It's aesthetic differences, but, and, and people may have opinions about how they want their barrel saddle to ride versus their cow horse saddle. Totally valid. But I'm still going to be able to build one that would fit a lot of people and they would get along with without talking about the specific changes that they want to make to their custom saddle. That makes sense. So, you know, the for a long time, the team ropers had too flat a seat in them and they didn't give you a good pocket to, to be comfortable in, let alone to have any kind of security in. And everyone thought that that was how a team roper should fit. When you talk to somebody that actually ropes at a high level, that's not how they want to ride. They want to have a little bit more security. They want to have a good rise to their ground seat so that when they stand up, there's something between their legs rather than it just disappears with some of the flatter seats. And so um, those actual function changes happened in order to save a little money because they didn't have to put three ground seat pieces in. They put one in. And yet everybody thought, oh, that's a great saddle. They didn't know that there wasn't enough ground seat in there to do the things functionally correct and comfortably for them. So there, there's some variation out there because like a, a ranch cutter to me, yeah. I feel like I'm in the seat. I feel like I'm deep versus, let's say, a rainer right. or a Western Pleasure. I'm not saying that's a discipline-specific saddle, but the way they're built up, like you're sitting on top of the horse versus in the horse. The, the funny thing, though, and I t totally understand what you're saying, and this is something that I'm constantly educating people about those rainers western pleasure saddles the majority of them have been built in a production setting for the last 30 years the vast majority of them are all built in production shops i don't like to make blanket statements but the vast majority of the people that work in those places are not horsemen there might be one person in that business that has ever built a saddle from start to finish themselves. And they probably didn't do it at a high level. And that's totally fine. 
they became managers of a business that creates a specific product. But if you talk to any of the handmade or, you know, single man shops that were out here, like your Terry Henson's, Terry is a great example. He's one of my mentors, one of the best saddle makers to ever live that a lot of people don't know of. He built hundreds of Rainers over the years. And you compare them functionally to a team roper or to a rain, uh, a, a rain cow horse saddle or to a cutter and functionally very minor differences in the ground seat or necessarily the fender shape because those are the two only those are only the only two effective changes to a saddle that i can make that really impact rider comfort the ground seat and the fender shape because that's going to say how free it is this that and the other the rest of it is all window dressing the rest of it is all aesthetics so when you say that a western pleasure saddle or a rainer makes you feel really up a lot of times that's because they have padded seats in them. Mm -hmm. The only reason that we went to a padded seat was so that production companies could go from using one single piece of leather for their seat that covers the entire seat versus two. Because when I cut a seat out, it's the biggest piece of leather on the hide. When they were able to use scraps and cut them into two, they would sew them together in the center and then stick a pad and a suede seat on top of it to cover that up in order to save money and not use the good piece of leather. So a lot of those functional changes occurred because of trying to save a little bit of money. Again, back to the team ropers going to a flatter seat, trying to save a little money. And yet everyone then became educated on what, you know, I need to go buy this or I need to go buy that. But they were building padded seated saddles. So that's how they were going to ride. They were just told to go buy one because that was right. And so everybody kind of as a collective went down the track of this is how it should fit. And functionally, as a saddle maker, I, there's a lot of stuff that goes out the door that could be improved. There's a lot of consideration here. What is one thing, and, and you've done a wonderful job of making it kind of a simple, simplistic evaluation of saddle fit, which is great. What is one thing you would say to, to the listeners of be leery for this and buying a new saddle well besides the scammers that are inundated on social media right now trying to use, sell used stuff um i think the biggest thing that that people need to understand is that they're never going to get a maserati on a miata budget and if they are realistic in what they're using and the issues that could come up then they're not necessarily as disappointed when they find out they were wrong um, so being realistic about that, understanding that this is my step. I'm going to use this for a little bit and then step up. Um, when you're in person, obviously feel the saddle, feel the leather. Is it dry rotted? Is it stiff? Is there life in it at all? Can I oil this and clean it up? Are the bones here good? But the easiest way to check whether the tree's broke or not is to set it nose down on a hard surface to where the swells and the horn come in contact with the ground or at least the swells come in contact with the ground and stand over top of it and push with both hands on the cannel forward into the ground if there's any flex at all any i'm talking like if grandma can make it flex it's broke if i can make it flex it might just be loose but I'm bigger and stronger than a lot of people. So that's where like, I have to use a little bit of judgment there and say, you might get a little bit more out of this or not. But if the average person can make it flex, stay away from it. To wrap this whole thing up, let's go back to the business side of it. Of everything you've learned from working with Don, the bumps and bruises of starting a new business, what is one lesson your job has taught you that you think everyone should learn at some point in their life? I love the Maserati on the Miata budget. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when I worked for Don, one of the earliest lessons that stuck in my head was I asked him, you know, I'm struggling with this. Or I'm struggling with that. How do I get better? What is, you know, what is one way that I can get better? And he said, ruin more hides. And I kind of thought about it for a minute. And, you know, he said that, the only way to get better is to do it. 
and I'm really, really bad about like over analysis to the point of paralysis where I have a new project coming up that I've never built before and I'll think about it for six months trying to piece my way through every single step of the process because that's one thing that you know I learned early on was how to reverse engineer things so I might look at a person think okay how did they do this this was the step then this then this then this because they're in leather work it's very important to do certain things before we do the next step because of moisture you know have to glue this for so whatever and so I'm always trying to evaluate every step of that process so that I don't have to go backwards I don't have to you know redo it to the point where I could have built three in that amount of time and I would have learned all of the things I needed to learn how to make one that was perfect as perfect as I can make it I'm never going to be perfect you know my hands shake so die sometimes gets places I don't want it to but if I would have just done it if I would have just started and ruined more hides then I would have had the physical experience because here's what what happened even though I thought I knew every step and knew how to avoid a pitfall, the first one still had the same pitfalls that I would have had six months ago if I would have done it then. But I would have learned all that stuff, but now I don't have the time to build three more for practice because it needs to hit a deadline. And so that's that's where I think a lot of people could better themselves, whether it's you know training horses or working cows or interacting with your, your family members, like just ruin more hides. Quit thinking about it. Go do something. Get out of the house. Um, because I know I'm bad about that with my horses too. You know, I try to go ride as much as I can and show when I can. But I'm not getting any better unless I'm out there doing it. Experience is the best educator. Absolutely. No doubt. No doubt. Well, I think you you nailed it. Uh, not just saying this because we're, we're old buddies, but I think you've done a great job again. About even I'm looking at the bridles, I can see them out of the corner of my eye. I'm a stickler. You know I'm. You know I like my bridles hung right. Right. Bridles are hung right. Place is neat. If you're ever in Temple, Texas area, definitely come see Calvin. And Calvin, how can they get in touch with you if they'd like to look you up and see your work? Uh, social media. I've got Facebook page, um, a personal page, and a business page, and then Instagram as well. And it's Calvin Waters Custom Saddlery on Instagram, and Facebook, both. Awesome. Appreciate your time. Thank you for everything you said. You gave us some great things to ponder. Absolutely. Thanks, Clay. Thank you for joining us on Taking the Reins. A special thank you goes to the Mississippi State Extension Service and the MSU Animal and Dairy Sciences Department. Please visit us on Facebook and Instagram at Taking the Reins Podcast.